If that failed to get your clock ticking, then your clapper is broken. All right? <laughs> Praise the Lord. <clears throat> First sermons are often memorable experiences. In Spurgeon's lectures to my students, it's a book that was written by Charles Spurgeon uh, in lecturing his students. There is a passage in there that talks about how that he would, he made it a tradition that he would call on his students on the spot, give them a passage of scripture and have them preach that particular passage of scripture extemporaneously right on the spot. One student was given the subject of Zacchaeus. The student stood before them and again before Spurgeon and all of his staff and he said, Zacchaeus was of little stature, so am I. Zacchaeus was up a tree, so am I. Zacchaeus came down, and so will I. And he sat down, and sermon was over. They applauded. Well, sermons are, first sermons are memorable, and we're able to look into Peter's first sermon. Just think about this. The very first sermon preached after the birth of the church of the living God. That's pretty amazing that we can look into this particular sermon. As we're studying it, we ask the question, what made this sermon one of the best sermons that was ever preached? Other than the sermons of Christ and maybe a few others we could pick out of the book of Acts, this one was in the upper echelon for sure of preaching. And I think we would say it's because Peter himself was profoundly full of the Holy Spirit of God. Second, it was a Jesus-filled sermon, and it was a scripture-saturated sermon. That makes all the difference in the world, right? When it comes to preaching, that's the kind of sermon he preaches. Now, think about this. A mere 53 days before this occasion, Peter was absolutely full of pride and presumptuousness. On the Passover night, he denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. Talk about a spiritual wretched or a spiritual plunge to go from the heights of being with Jesus for three and a half years of his ministry and all of a sudden on the night when Christ needed him most, he said, I disavow my allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. The, later, the Lord would later restore Peter on the shores of Galilee by asking him three times, do you love me? So in his three denials was turned around to do you love me? But here we have an amazing turnaround, and on the day of Pentecost, he's overflowing with profound fullness. And he wanted his own people to know the profound emptiness of not having Jesus at the center of their lives. So he's preaching, of course, and 3,000 souls are going to be saved. Isn't that amazing? 3,000 Jewish people, just like Peter, they were not Galileans like him, the hillbillies, right, like we talked about. But they nonetheless were Israelites, his people, and they would come to know Jesus. Remember, the first part of the sermon was found. Uh, Peter will address Joel chapter 2, 28 through 32, and he will say, this is that, this is what is taking place, this is what you are observing with your ears. And when you get to verse 22, we're going to enter the very heart of the sermon, and there's going to be foundational observations that Peter will make that are quintessential observations that we, 
we have to have in our lives. As a matter of fact, you can't, if you don't believe these, you can't be saved. So that's going to be what Peter is going to do. He's going to talk about the foundational truths of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read, beginning in verse 22. I'm just going to read down through verse 28 this morning. And so I will preach Peter's sermon in three parts, last week, this week, and next week. But really the theme today, whereas last week was embrace the work of the Spirit, this week it is exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And beginning in verse 22, here's what the Word of the Lord says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know this. This Jesus delivered up according to the, to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Note that. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite, definitive plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And David's going to predict it. David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. May God bless the reading of his word. So what Peter's going to do after he says this is that, Acts chapter 2 verse 20, uh, beginning in that sermon, he's going to turn right around and make a beeline to Jesus. He's going to say this is what's happening on this day. The, the Holy Spirit is being poured out in the promise of the Savior, in the promise of the Word, just like we've pr- it's been promised. And these events take place, Pentecost, and its very explanation. Peter's going to use that as a segue right into emphasizing the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are two transitional themes that Peter wants to be on the forefront of your mind as you study this sermon. The first one, transitional transitional theme, is the fact that the outpouring of the Spirit is irrefutable evidence that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That's why it takes place in fulfillment on the day of Pentecost, 49 plus 1, right? In fulfillment of the Old Testament, uh, it's not just grain offering or a feast of grain. It is the harvest, It is the kingdom come sermon. It has come in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in light of this irrefutable evidence, Peter says, I'm going to prove to you that Jesus of Nazareth, note that, is our Messiah, Lord and King. So that's the broad theme that we're going to track. But there's also a narrow theme that's being developed for us. In Joel chapter 2, note this. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, in Joel, whoever call, it is actually whoever calls upon Yahweh God. Alright? You know what that's saying. There's only one God, and His name is Yahweh. Uh, in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So then the broad theme is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. The narrow theme is that Jesus Christ is God. Are y'all listening? 
Because it goes back, again, to Joel chapter 2. That's what he's actually saying. And note verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and... Say it. Christ. He's Lord and Christ. So that is the fulfillment of what's going on. As a matter of fact, if you flip back to Isaiah, remember this, 43.12. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. Again, Acts 1.8 is a fulfillment of that particular verse in Isaiah. You are my witnesses. Who's saying that? God is. Yahweh. So who is Jesus? He's God. Okay? That's the narrow theme of what he is building upon. Now, did you note in verse 22 that he begins to make it very personal in his preaching? He says to them, you. Did y'all note that? He is very, he's uh, speaking, he's not speaking ambiguously to them in the third person. He's not addressing his sermon like him or she or they. He is talking directly to the people right in front of him. So there is earnestness and there is passion and there is courage And unlike a lot of TV preachers and what's going on in our world today, there was direct address in this sermon. Y'all see that? Come on, folks. Yes. Make me know you're alive. Okay? There's direct address. Jay Adams reminds us that you really haven't preached until you say you. But in our world today... We live in an age where preaching is something that skirts around the truth. It gives vague things that are disconnected in the hopes that somebody will go home and grab a hold to a few ideas or some kind of gem. Well, folks, biblical preaching says directly, men of Israel. Biblical preaching says, First Baptist Church Ozark, looking you in the eye, And bringing it from the Word of God. That is what real biblical preaching is. I'm speaking directly to you on the authority of the Word of God. And you need to listen. Right? That's what's going on when he stands and does this that day. He does it with boldness. And earnestness. And passion. And his inescapable conclusion is Jesus Christ is indeed both Lord and Christ. To God be the glory. Jonathan Edwards made the point that the gospel is never proclaimed unless it is done against the backdrop of a serious warning that God Almighty stands in judgment upon all who cling to their impenitent ways and never acknowledge their own sin and never run to the cross. In our day, we look down on preaching that smells anything of brimstone or anything that suggests hell or anything that communicates the idea That there might be an everlasting judgment for unrepentant sinners. But let me remind you folks, on every page of this book, the Bible, you are looking at the backdrop of a future judgment coming upon people who don't repent and turn to Jesus. And hell is real, ladies and gentlemen. And if if I'm a preacher half worth my salt, I have to tell you that heaven is real and so is hell. Right? And so you say, what's the backdrop? Listen... The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before that day comes, the great and magnificent day. And think about, this is just not a postscript. When Peter says, 
Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, that's not a postscript. That's not a PS. That's at the backdrop of that is the world will be judged. And everybody that stands before the great white throne judgment and they've not repented, or if you're before the great white throne judgment, you haven't repented. And if you're before that, you're going to, be, you're going to spend eternity in hell, folks. That's not popular preaching in the U.S., but that's Bible. And whether you like it or not, you called a Bible-preaching preacher. Okay? And I have to stand there and tell you that because the Bible tells you judgment is coming upon those who don't repent and turn to Jesus Christ. So when Peter gives that warning, there's a calamity coming that's going to befall all the human race. You need to turn to Jesus while you've got time. You need to turn to Jesus and repent. So hear the truth. That's a long introduction, wasn't it? Well, there's foundational truths that he's going to preach us. This is going to be really easy and really exciting because it's the gospel for us. So the heading is exalt the Savior. And here's the first thing he says about exalting him. Jesus' life and ministry was publicly endorsed by the Father. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to talk about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's good preaching, isn't it? Uh, That's what we've been singing about this morning. The life, death, and burial, and resurrection. So... The text quickly identifies him as Jesus of Nazareth. Now, underscore that because there are a lot of people walking around in Jerusalem or in Galilee or Nazareth during that time who would have carried the name Yeshua or Jesus. It was a common Jewish name. Yet Peter specifies that this Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth. So there is no question that the one they've known and heard about, the very one who's done all these miracles and so forth, is the one we're dealing with at this point. So we must not miss the central significance that Jesus Christ performed phenomenal miracles that were absolutely supernatural. And he met and addressed specific needs. Chris has been preaching through Mark, and we see one by one Jesus conquering forces of nature and everything else in between, right? Because he is God Yet beyond the local and immediate work of compassion, there's a far deeper significance to the miracles that took place when Jesus did them. It verified that He was sent by the Father to the world. Y'all see that word, publicly endorsed? He was publicly endorsed by God the Father. So there's a reason why these things took place. It demonstrated, all the miracles demonstrated that God was performing them through the God-man the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember this? Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God because no one can do these things unless they're from God. So Nicodemus, even before redemption, he recognizes these things are done by the Lord. So the primary point, listen to this, the primary point for a miracle is God giving his sign of approval that the one that is speaking is speaking the truth. Now, that's important for our day, even, when people are claiming to be miracle workers. In fact, many standing there that day, 53 days earlier, were the very ones who knew those miracles, knew those activities that Jesus was doing. So he's not introduced as some kind of obscure person. When he's preaching this sermon, the people listening know who he is. He is Jesus of Nazareth. So Peter's point, he's attested. He's authenticated By the Father. God is the actor. God is the doer throughout the book of Acts. 
And God authenticates and delivers and raises up. God approves and endorses him right before their very eyes. He will do it through powers and signs and wonders. And it's not mythological. It's not a fable. It's not a saga. It's not a legend. It is the historical grounded fact of the supernatural work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The winds and the waves obey his voice. The Old Testament anticipated this earthly ministry that was going to take place when Jesus Christ walked on the face of this earth. And in Acts 3, it's not going to stop. Because in a few weeks, we're going to learn that the lame jump up leaping for joy. Right? So that's going to be not for us to go willy-nilly and say, Woo, miracle, miracle. Let's raise somebody from the dead. Again, that authenticates who Jesus Christ is when somebody gets up and walks. It's not just a miracle for the miracle's sake. It is attesting to the fact that Jesus Christ has the power to even heal your limbs. He has the power to heal you completely. So, the rulers said, he's speaking in the name of Lucifer. Y'all remember this? Yeah, they say, Jesus, they, they attest what he's doing to Satan. But what does God say? I'm publicly endorsing his ministry, right? Because, of course, he was God in the flesh. So he says to them, you know this. Do y'all see that word? I mean, it's not in a vacuum here. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You know these things. You've witnessed it. So he will not let them escape this reality. He'll drive this point home over and over and over again. Now consider this audience that he's speaking to. And this statement, you know this. That trumpets the veracity of what Peter is saying to them. If his life and ministry and resurrection would have been a fraud, all these men had to do was come forth with a body. Is everybody listening? Hey, Christianity will fold like a house of cards. Show me the body. body. Right? All they have to do is come forward with the body. They're all witnesses. The people he's preaching to, they know full well that the tomb was empty. They know full well these things, and he's preaching to them. And so he's saying to them, what I'm telling you is absolutely irrefutable. He was endorsed by the Father. And note the text. This Jesus delivered up according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So not only was he endorsed by the Father, but he was crucified. This is the gospel, isn't it? This exalted Christ was nailed to a Roman cross, died a shameful death, an unjust death at the request of the Jewish people. It tells us two things about the death of Christ. First, the death of Jesus was according to God's predetermined plan. Did y'all see it in the text? He was delivered up according to the definite plan of God. The terms definite plan and foreknowledge of God are two ways of saying the same thing. As a matter of fact, there's only one Greek article, like a the or an a, that accompanies both of these terms. Okay, that's important for us to think about. So, the reason that God foreknows it is because He planned it. Now, this is, we're treading in some deep water, aren't we? But He was delivered up according to the definite plan of God. He, in other words, this was God's sovereign decree and plan that Jesus will be delivered up and be killed at the hands of men. When we ask the question, who killed Jesus? According to the first part of verse 23, the Father killed the Son. You say, Pastor, I don't believe that. Isaiah 53 says, it pleased 
the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to put him to open shame. So, in the first question, who killed him? The father did. It was according to his plan that he established before the world, before uh, finite. Go as far back as you want to infinitely. That's when the father planned it. It's quiet in here. Such a strange, such a strong statement that our God is 100% sovereign. Folks, he's not only sovereign in the plans and affairs of this world, but he's sovereign in salvation. He is absolutely sovereign. He was handed over by the predetermined plan of a sovereign God. And yet Peter turns right around in the very same sentence and says, You nailed him to the cross by the hands of lawless men. You did away with him. The emphasis is upon the violent nature of his death. We start thinking about this around Resurrection Sunday, don't we? The violent nature of his death. You killed him by murder. The emphasis is on the violence. Again, who killed Jesus? Well, according to that, the lawless men would have been the godless Romans who actually physically nailed him to the cross. Well, who killed Jesus? The Father? But who's morally culpable? The Romans and the Jews who turned him over. Puts them all there, doesn't he? How is it that Peter can stop right here in the middle and lean 100% on the divine sovereignty of God but also turn right around and say, You! are morally culpable for putting Jesus Christ to death. You Romans and you Jews. Well, we can't just stop here and say, well, this is just cognizant dissonance, and we're just going to forget about it. Well, the fact of the matter is, it says just what I just said. The Father determined to give up the Son for your salvation and mine. But He was put to death by lawless people. He's perfectly... Peter sees this as perfectly compatible, right, with theology. And so should you. Sometimes we hear words like election and foreknowledge and predestination. We just go, right? It's in the Bible, folks. And the Bible holds it in in tension like it should. And yes, it causes tension because he's God and we're not, right? There's tension there because on one hand, God is sovereign. He delivered him up, predetermined plan. And Jesus even said this, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. And then on the other hand, we're morally culpable, right? The men of Israel meant to destroy Jesus of Nazareth. But in the process, they were working out nothing less than the determined, eternal will and plan of God. Hallelujah. Attested by the Father, endorsed by the Father, and crucified. But note this text. God raised him up. Isn't that all? Don't you love the but God statements in the Bible? We were dead in trespasses and sin, but God in his great mercy. And so not only do we have the public endorsement of the Father, attested by the Father, but Jesus was crucified, but Jesus resurrected from the dead. God loved it. Don't you love the terminology? God raised him up which is an Old Testament principle, principle, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Hallelujah. So, the Romans and the Jews condemned him in an earthly court and put him to death. But the heavenly court says he's not staying there. Y'all listening? I didn't get one amen from that, right? The heavenly court overruled the earthly court. And of course, we know the story. We know what the Bible says. It was impossible for death to hold him there. Death's power power 
was incapable. It was not possible for death to hold Jesus there. We move from the life of Jesus and ministry, public endorsed by the Father, to His crucifixion, and then we move to His glorious resurrection. You know, often when we teach about the gospel, we put major emphasis upon the cross, and we should put emphasis upon the cross. But if you trace the 19 sermons found in the book of Acts, the central ingredient of the gospel is going to be the resurrection. And why is that the case? Well, it's the case because that's the central theme. They are called witnesses of, of the resurrected Lord. That's why the sermons are going to be like that, because they know they're witnesses of the resurrected Lord. But the resurrection always implies the cross, right? It always implies the cross, so yet the central reoccurring theme is that God raised up Jesus from the dead. This is an earth-shattering message. You live here, folks. That's what he's saying to them. You live right here in Jerusalem, and I'm preaching the sermon. It's irrefutable evidence that he's Jesus of Nazareth. Here's the other evidence. Go find his body. You're not going to find it in the tomb like Buddha and Mohammed and everybody else. Why? Because the grave could not contain him. It could not hold him. And God raised him up. That's an earth-shattering message. God loosed him from the birth pangs of death. This is an allusion to Psalm 18.4. You loosed me from the cords of death. So, what is the significance of being loosed from the birth pangs of death? I think it means this. That the grave could no longer hold Jesus back from the resurrection. That a woman could hold back a baby from being born. You knew women ever tried that, right? It ain't going to happen, is it? Right? We know some of the stories that even happen with people in this church. Couldn't get in the labor room quick enough, right? Labor and delivery. You, some of you had your babies at home because you couldn't ever make it out of the house. So think about this. Death, it was impossible for death to hold Jesus in the grave. Death was given an impossible task. Now the devil says, as it were... Death, here's your job. We want you to hold as prey Jesus of Nazareth in the bonds of death. It was absolutely impossible for the power of death to hold Jesus there. The sinless Lord of glory who died for our sins could not be held by the grave. Now, skeptics will say, how in the world can Christians believe this? I mean, how can you believe in a bodily resurrection? Well, they shouldn't get mad at us when we talk about resurrection. If, if we're really wrong and it's, it's impossible, then they ought to pity us, right? Because Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus, not be, if Jesus has not risen from the grave, then we are men to be most pitied. Your faith is empty. Your faith is futile. That means there's no salvation if Jesus didn't resurrect from the grave. So they ought to just pity us, right? The world should pity all of us. Uh, when people die, they stay dead. Naturally. That's what happens, correct? David Hume discussed or dismissed the resurrection on the basis of probability, probabilities, all things being equal. Can I remind you that all things were not equal? Are y'all listening? Why? Because by one man's sin, sin entered into the world. Death entered this world because of sin. I, rec I introduce you to the one who never sinned. Are y'all listening? This is good theology, right? I introduce you to the one who was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. He who knew no sin became sin for us. You know why it was impossible for, him to, for death to keep him there? Well, he's God. Yeah, I understand that. But he was also sinless. That's why it was impossible. So, 
death was given an impossible task. And I want to remind you that one day the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall be raised first. Right? That's coming in the future. That's our resurrection. Why? Because he came forth from the grave as a first fruits. You will also come up as well. Right? You won't be floating around in heaven as a phantom. To be absent from the body, yes, is to be present with the Lord immediately when you die. Just as Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. But that thief's body wasn't with Christ right then. It was put in the ground and decayed and the worms ate it. And thus will happen to your body. But one day, God's going to resurrect that body. He has no problem putting that body back together. And he's going to raise it incorruptible like unto the Lord, glorified, and will be in heaven forever, body, soul, and spirit. God is good, isn't he? These words ought to move your heart. There in the ground his body lay. Light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave he arose. How about this old hymn? Classic. We sing it at Easter, don't we? Vainly they watched his bed. That's exactly right. Vainly they watched his bed, Jesus my Savior. Vainly they sealed the dead, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he arose. Death could not keep his prey. Jesus, my Savior. He tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord. You know the song. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain. And he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. To Peter is preaching. To those men who know full well what the power of death is. Who had witnessed Many times, death by crucifixion, which was the absolutely worst form of torture known to man. As a matter of fact, Deuteronomy 18 says, Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. They could not rationalize the fact that their Messiah would die. But it was through the curse of the cross that Jesus took care of the curse of our sin. Praise God for the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world to purchase His people. These men were steeped in the Old Testament. So next week, we're going to see how he runs to Psalm 16 and Psalms 110 to prove that David predicted it and Peter's going to explain it. Let me conclude this morning by reminding you that what you've just heard is the gospel. Life, death, burial, and resurrection. Those are the true foundational statements of what it means to be saved and a believer. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1, Paul will say, Moreover, I have delivered unto you of first importance that Jesus died according to the Scriptures. He was buried and rose again according to the Scriptures. Folks, that's first importance. Right? Now, I'd be remiss not to go back and we would think about, yes, the Romans crucified him. The Jews put him to death. And yes, it happened according to the Father's predetermined plan, right? But you crucified Him as well. Are y'all listening? It was for the propitiation of our sins that He died. I love the old song by Gordon Jensen. It's called, I Should Have Been Crucified. Listen to the words. I was guilty with nothing to say. And they were coming to take me away. But then a voice from heaven was heard which said, Turn him loose and take me instead. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And verse 2. Crown of thorns 
the spear in his side, and all the pain should have been mine. Those rusty nails were meant for me, but Jesus took them and let me go free. And the chorus goes, I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. I should have hung on the cross in disgrace. But Jesus, God's Son, took my place. We all should have been crucified. But He was crucified in our place so that bearing our sin debt, if we turn to Christ and trust Him only, then He gives us eternal life and a righteousness that is apart from the law. Praise God for grace. Lord Jesus, we thank You this morning for the preaching of the Word and how Peter makes it, gives irrefutable evidence that Jesus of Nazareth, attested by the Father, publicly endorsed, through miracles and signs and wonders, which they knew and saw, they also delivered Him up and crucified Him. Father, it was Your eternal plan. It pleased the Lord to bruise Him. God, we thank You. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only unique Son. God, thank You for the gift of Your Son. And Lord, death could not hold Him. Vainly, they watched His bed. Lord, thank You for the resurrection. Lord, our salvation came up from the grave when You arose. Christianity was birthed in the resurrection. God, we thank You for it. Lord, if there's an individual, we've prayed this this morning, Lord, many of us have. If there's someone under the sound of our voices that's lost, God, would you let them see the backdrop of eternal judgment, but also let them see the glory of Jesus, that you came to save sinners. Lord, all of us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Wages of sin is death. Gift of God is eternal life. That if we shall confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe upon His name. Whosoever, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let those verses echo in our minds. May your Spirit work together with your Word to affect change in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.